Good morning. This morning I'm honored to be reading from the Living Bible Translation, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, you must respect your masters and do whatever they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are tough and cruel. Praise the Lord if you are punished for doing right. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you do right and suffer for it and are patient beneath the blows, God is well pleased. This suffering is all part of the work God has given you. Christ, who suffered for you, is your example. Follow in His steps. He never sinned and never told a lie, never answered back when insulted. When He suffered, He did not threaten to get even. He left His case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried the load of our sins in His own body when He died on the cross so that we can be finished with sin and live a good life from now on. For His wounds have healed ours. Like sheep, you wandered away from God, but now you have returned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls, who keeps you safe from all attacks. Thank you, Dean. I want you to put yourself in a, someone else's shoes today. I want you to consider uh, if you were working for a marketing company, okay? You're working for a marketing company, and your boss comes and he presents you with a portfolio, and he tells you this is a new project we have. We have the opportunity to uh, win this client if we can come up with a good plan to market their business. And so he hands you the portfolio. You back, go back to your office and you open it up to see which business you've been charged with kind of coming up with a marketing strategy to promote. And you find that this business that you are to promote is one that is against your conscience. It's one that, it's a business that markets a product that actually is in contrast and it, it goes contrary to what God would have you to do. And so what do you do? Well, you may say, well, that's pretty easy. I'd just go to my boss and I would say, well, I can't work on this project um, because I have a, you know, objection to what they offer, the products they offer and whatnot, and how they do it. Well, usually it's not that simple, is it? What if your boss says, well, you can, you can either help with this project or you can find another job. And let's just complicate it a little bit more. And let's say you're married and your wife has just delivered your third child. And you have not only hospital bills, but you have a house payment, car payment, you got student loans due, and now you're faced with that decision. What do you do? How do you respond to that type of authority? Well, let me give you another example. Imagine you were uh, this pastor. This is a true story. Uh, you were a pastor in Korea during the 40s. And the name of the town that you were pastoring in is uh, Soon Chun. And a band of communists comes in your town and takes control of your town, and then has your oldest two boys executed. And soon after, the, um, the communists are removed and driven out. And after that happens, the young man that actually pulled the trigger to kill your two sons is found and brought before the court. So the question is, what would you like to see happen to him? Let me give you another scenario. Let's say you were in the Roman Empire 
in the first century and you were a slave or a servant. Now, it's very likely that if you were living during that time in the Roman Empire that you would be a servant or you'd be a slave. You know, one scholar says this about the Roman Empire. He says, in very early times there had been few slaves in Rome. But then as Rome began to conquer other territories, they would take their citizens and make them servants of theirs. And so he goes on to say, by New Testament times, slaves were counted by the millions. It was by no means only menial tasks that were performed by slaves. You may think, well, slaves, they just did you know, the dirty work. Well, not necessarily. Uh, doctors, actors, teachers, musicians, secretaries, stewards, all of those were considered servants or could be servants. In fact, he says that all the work done in Rome was done by slaves or servants. But one thing you need to know about the servant-master relationship in the first century is that even though there were millions of servants, millions of slaves in Rome and in the Roman Empire, they were not seen as people that had rights, but rather they were seen as simply things to be used. Aristotle said this, he said, There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So what Aristotle's saying is, uh, a slave is like, or a servant is like a hammer. You know, let's say you're hammering something in the wall, and you hit your finger. So you just take the hammer, and you just throw it into the river. Well, the you know, family of hammers aren't going to come out and take you to court because you drowned the hammer. But that's what he's saying. He said, that's what a slave is. If you had the, the position of servant or slave, you had no rights. In other words, you had no way of protesting unjust treatment. You were, made, you were just simply a tool. So if you were a servant in the first century... And you were being unjustly treated. How would you respond to that? I mean, what would you do? And what I'm saying is you, you've actually done something that's good. You are doing something that's good and you were punished for it. I mean, what would you do? How would you respond to that? Well, this is the situation of the recipients of Peter's letter. This is who he's writing to. And notice that when he's writing to this group of people, he doesn't address the masters. And the reason for that is probably because there were not many masters who were Christians at that time. This is early Christianity, and there were not many masters. Now, in other letters, we will see uh, direction given to masters and how they treat their slaves. But right here, he just talks to the slaves. And the odds are, most of his audience were servants or slaves, and... Most likely, their, their masters were not Christians, and many of them perhaps <coughs> suffered unjustly in different situations and different scenarios. And therefore, <coughs> excuse me, in light of this reality, this first century reality, Peter writes the following in verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And he goes on to say, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, 
one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, when you hear that, I'm sure you're thinking, at least some of you may be thinking, you know, Ron, this is a, this is a hard saying, and I really don't think this applies to me, because I'm not a servant. I'm not a slave. I don't live in that same type of context of first century Rome. And that you're right, you do not live in the exact historical situation that these people found themselves in, in the Roman Empire, but... If you trace what Peter's doing throughout this chapter, I think you'll see that what he's doing is he is demonstrating how we as Christians can live good and respectful lives in relation to our authorities, both those who are ordained by God, the government, which we talked about last week, as well as those who we find ourselves under, for example, our masters. And although you may not be a slave or a servant in the same way Peter's audience was, you still you live your lives under authority, do you not? I mean, we are all under authority to some degree. We all have to submit to authority if we're going to live good and respectful lives in the world. For example, if you have a job, you probably have a boss. Whether that's a literal person above you that has authority over you, or even your customer base, or your client could be looked at as an authority or a boss figure. If you're in a school, you most likely have a teacher. If you're in the household as a child, you have a parent or some guardian that has authority over you. If you're in the military, then there's someone with a higher rank that has authority over you. You We all live under different degrees of authority, but yet we still live under authority nonetheless. So here's the question. How should we respond when someone over us in authority over us, treats us unjustly. And what I mean by that is not exactly how Alex was talking about in the sense that you know, we need to do what they say, but what if you do what they say and you do what is right and good and they still punish you for it? What are you to do then? Well, if you have ever taken an ethics class or a business ethics or medical ethics, you know how complicated this can get Real quick. You know, it's not simply, I, can just, I can't just stand up here and say, well, you know, whenever you're faced with this situation, this is what you should do. Because there are so many different scenarios. How can you measure them all in one 20-minute, 25-minute sermon? You can't. But I do think, looking at this passage, we can draw some, uh, some example as well as some principles that we can follow to hopefully navigate those scenarios we find ourselves in. And what we see here is that in verses 18 through 20, what Peter seems to be doing is he does seem to be focusing mainly on that servant-master relationship in the first century. But then once he moves into verse 21 through 25, I think he broadens the example. And he includes more than just those who find themselves in that servant position in first century Rome. But I think he includes there all of Christians. And this is why I think that. In verse 21 through 25, this is what he says. For to this you have been called. Why is that? Well, because Christ also suffered for you. 
And so you see how he's drawing his example back to Christ. And so now we're looking at, okay, well, who did Christ suffer for? That's who he's exhorting here. Well, that would include any of us who call ourselves Christian. So he says, for, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so Peter broadens the application of enduring unjust suffering by taking us to the example of Christ. And notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 21. For to this you have been called. He's saying you've been called to suffer. Even unjustly. That word called there means this is your vocation. This is what Christ did. This is how he lived. And so if you are in Christ, this is what you may experience as well. This is what you're called to. You're called to be Christ-like. He says that Christ suffered for us. And he suffered for us in two ways, Peter says. First of all, Peter mentions that Christ suffered for us and that he left us an example to follow. And this word there, an example to follow, is the idea of um, setting a pattern. It's a word that was used in the first century to, uh, to talk about how students would learn their alphabet. So like for example, when little Lily, my little Lily comes home from kindergarten, she has, sometimes she has these, these sheets of paper where she has to trace the letters, right? They have little dotted lines or whatnot, and then she has to trace them. That's an example. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. Christ has left us an example that we are to trace. He has left us a path that we are to walk down. He has left us these footprints that we are to place our feet in as we walk with God. And so he has left us an example to follow. And he also says, Peter says here in verse 22, that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now why would he say that? Not only is it true, but he's showing you that Jesus is the only one who is purely innocent and who has totally suffered unjustly. I mean, there was no deceit in his mouth. There was no sin. There was no reason for him to suffer, and yet he suffered. He suffered unjustly. And so how did Jesus respond to unjust suffering? You see the pattern here? You see the example he lists in verse 23? First of all, he did not seek revenge. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten. Now, when someone accuses you of something that you did not do, or tries to punish you or give you some consequence that you did not deserve, how do you respond? I know my tendency is to retaliate, right? Now, this may be aggressively or passively. What you may do is someone may charge you with something or talk, you know, 
to accuse you of something and you may just aggressively retaliate. You know, just get right in their face and tell them, hey, that was wrong. I didn't deserve that. You're wrong for saying that. Some of you may just take it, take the accusation or the consequence, but later you may passively retaliate and that you may try to, you know, destroy that person uh, kind of in secret, so to speak, by attacking them, uh, gossiping about them, etc. But notice that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he uttered no threats. In other words, if you, tra- if you track Jesus' life, it's interesting. When you track his life here on the earth, you notice that he did not practice that eye for an eye process, did he? He just absorbed that suffering in himself, especially at the end when he, when he died on the cross. So he did not seek revenge, but he also entrusted him, his situation to God. In verse 23, he says that Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And I think this is how Jesus was mindful of God. When, when Jesus was living out his life, he was mindful of God. In other words, everything he did flowed out of his relationship with God, including when he suffered unjustly. So the first reason that Christ suffered for us is to leave us an example, but the second reason he suffered for us is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter writes in verses 24 and 25 that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what Peter's saying is the only way for you and for me to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to actually pursue Christ's likeness, to follow in his footsteps, is first we must be put on the path with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Through Christ's suffering do we enter that path with God. And that's the only way that we would ever respond in Christ's likeness to any type of suffering, whether it be just or unjust. And the only way for you and I to enter that path with God is through the sufferings of Jesus Christ. By His wounds we were healed. It's interesting, he talks about how a slave, he says you need to endure even unjust suffering. And I think part of that is to demonstrate that their hope, their faith, their trust is in a God who judges justly. In other words, they were not so wrapped up in seeing justice accomplished here and now, even though that's good when we see that. But even if it's not, they knew justice would be served when Christ returns and God judges the world. There will be no wrongdoing left unchecked. And they can suffer even in the midst of that, knowing that God is the one who judges justly. And the only way for you and for for me to come into that path with God, have our sin forgiven, turn from sin, come with God, is through the sufferings of Jesus Christ. By His wounds, we are healed. Through His suffering, what He took on the cross, we are able to now live to righteousness. In other words, seek God, know God, walk with God on a daily basis. It's through being united to Christ that we begin to see God as the shepherd, as the guardian, as the protector, as the director, as the overseer of our souls. 
Now, with that said, how should we, how should we deal with being treated unjustly? What should we do when we face that? When we face an accusation or a consequence because of something we did not do, and maybe even because of something good we had done, and yet we're receiving a consequence or a punishment for it, how should we respond? Well, first of all, we must be mindful of God. In other words, our reaction needs to be filtered by what we know to be true about God. Our reaction also needs to be consistent with the example of Jesus Christ. So whether you're a servant in the Roman Empire in the first century, or whether you work at University Hospital here in Augusta, our reaction needs to be qualified by the example of Jesus Christ. So if you're wondering, well, Ron, how should I respond in this scenario? I would say, well, first, let's be mindful of God. Let's see, let, let, me, let my reaction be consistent with the example of Christ. And I think in order to figure out, okay, what should my reaction exactly be? How should I respond to an unjust situation? I think we need to ask ourselves at least three questions. The first one is, how can my reaction benefit those around me? Not how can my reaction benefit me or put me in the right necessarily, but how can my reaction benefit those around me? And I think we see that in the example of Christ. Peter says that Christ suffered for you. His suffering was not just for his own benefit, but he suffered for us. And so I think as we encounter suffering, as we encounter accusation, we need to figure out, okay, how does my reaction benefit those around me? Not just make me right, but how can it benefit those around me? Second question I think we should ask is, how can my reaction showcase grace? You know, as Christians, we always want to lean toward grace and demonstrating grace. Peter says in verse 21, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a Christ-like thing, and therefore God approves of it. So I think we need to ask ourselves the question, when I react to a certain situation, even if it's an unjust situation against me, how can I showcase grace? And the, finally, the last question I think we should ask, and I'm sure there are many more, but the last question I have here that we can ask is, how can my reaction display my trust in my God who judges justly? Peter says, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here's the thing. If you do not believe in a God who will judge the world, who will judge each one of you and every person that's ever lived, then the only justice, if you want to call it that, that you will ever see is what you can accomplish in this life. Therefore, when you are wronged unjustly, your only possible logical reaction is retaliation and revenge. How else will justice be served? When you're wronged, the only way to get them back is if you exact some type of judgment on them now, if there's no God who judges. But Peter says, we as Christians, we are sojourners and we're exiles in this place. 
Therefore, we know that the kingdom of the world is not all there is, but there is a kingdom of God where Christ rules and God will judge the living and the dead. Therefore, we can walk through this life, we can walk through the kingdom of the world, so to speak, with an eye towards the kingdom of heaven, knowing that God will right all the wrongs, even if people seem to get away with it now. And therefore, we can entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. And I think our reaction needs to demonstrate that. Our our reaction doesn't need to put all of our faith, all of our hope, all of our trust in the law of the land, but rather it needs to demonstrate as well a trust in the law of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God to judge every person. And that's what keeps us as Christians from retaliating. That's why Peter can say, you know, if you are a servant who has no legal right whatsoever, who could never go to the court of law and plead your case before them, even when you suffer unjustly, you should endure it. Why? Because God takes notice. He will bring it all to account. And that sin will be paid for in one of two ways. Either Christ bore it on the cross, or that person will bear it for eternity in separation from God. One of, the, one of those ways the sin will be dealt with. God is a righteous judge, and therefore we can entrust ourselves to Him. So I think our reaction, we want to display that our trust is in my God who judges justly. Now I want to finish telling you about the story of this Korean pastor. They catch the guy who killed his two sons, Matthew and John. And even as Matthew and John were dying, they pleaded with, with their, their enemies to trust in Christ. And then they were gunned down. Well, they caught the guy who shot him. His name was Kai's son. He was a young man, and he was the one identified as the one who pulled the trigger. But once the communists were pushed out of the country... And their government got back up and running. They brought this guy to trial. And his execution was ordered. Pastor's son requested that the charges be dropped. And that Kai's son be released into his custody for adoption. Rachel, the 13 year old sister of the murdered boys. Testified to support her father's incredible requests. Only then did the court agree to release Kai's son. He became the son of the pastor and a believer in the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is what pastor's son said. Now listen to this. I thank God that he has given me the love to seek, to convert, and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. How can a man react like that? How can he do that? What, I mean, is there any other explanation other than being mindful of God that would explain the way he reacted? I mean, is there any other explanation other than following the example of Jesus Christ that would explain his response, his reaction? Do you, want people, do you want people to see that in your reaction? When they see you react, do you want people to say, I just don't understand. 
The only possible way that that person can react that way is they must have faith in God. They must have some belief that I just must not have or I'm unaware of. In other words, your response was one of being mindful of God and people take notice of that. I hope that's how you want to respond, even if you encounter unjust suffering. And the only way that you and I will ever react that way to unjust suffering is if we are able to be mindful of God through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we acknowledge this is a hard saying to suffer unjustly. But our attention is quickly turned to your son, Jesus Christ, who was the innocent sufferer, and yet he suffered for us so that we may have life. He was mindful of you. He entrusted himself fully to you. And Lord, I pray as we face all the number of different circumstances and scenarios that we face day by day, that our reaction would be one in which people would look at it and say, I I just don't know how to explain it other than that person has been with Jesus. And that is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.